Hello and welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. And this podcast is all about helping our church, Sacred City Church, follow Jesus in the normal, everyday rhythms of life. If you're from outside of our church, we're glad you're listening. We want to be a blessing. We want to help you think about your life, think about doctrine, think about Jesus, think about the Bible, and uh, in, in better ways so you can follow Jesus and make an impact in your neighborhood, in your family, in your city, in your school, wherever you're at. And... Um, We've had a lot of podcasts. We're coming out with at least two podcasts a week. We're doing the Theology for Everyone podcast. We're doing some Beyond the Sermon stuff, some cultural stuff. But we've also been dropping in some Bible 101 and some Bible 201. And so today we're going to pick up on that Bible 201 conversation. Last time we left off saying we were going to, what, Kevin, what did we say we are going to do? Go through hermeneutics. We're going to talk about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a big Word. Most of us probably don't know what hermeneutics means. Um, hermeneutics basically means how to interpret Scripture. What does Scripture mean? How do you get the meaning out of Scripture? And so today I am here with Kevin. I'm here with Bryson. I'm with Alex, my pastoral residence. What's going on, What's going guys? On? And uh, we're going to ask, we're going to help you learn how to interpret the Bible. Okay. Now, if I asked you, let me just go around the room. What is the purpose of the Bible? Bryson, what's the purpose of the Bible? Um, to know God. To know God. Okay. Kevin, what's the purpose of the Bible? To know God and enjoy Him forever. Oh, okay, 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 okay. To know God and enjoy Him forever. Alex, what do you think? The blueprint. The blueprint. Let's go. What is that? <laughs> what do you mean? I would just say the the uh, what it looks like to live life, what it looks like to uh, follow Jesus, what it looks like to know Jesus, what it looks like to um, enjoy Him. Mm. Okay. Um, none of those are wrong. Um, all of those are good answers. The I would say the purpose of the Bible is to display the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. I think, I think we're all there and we're all on similar, but um, I narrowed in on Jesus mm. because I think he's the culmination of the Bible. He's um, what the Bible is all about. And that's going, and so, so right away we're saying, I'm saying the Bible is primarily about God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. And then second, secondary, secondarily, secondarily, thank you. Secondarily about us. Okay. Now, many people say the Bible is actually about us mm. primarily. It's, I've heard people say it's the rule book for life. It's the, oh my gosh, this is an acronym, isn't it? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Let's just stick with guidelines. <laughs> Think of it, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Yikes. At first of all, I'm like, hold on, before leaving earth? 
my end res- I'm ending up back on Earth, the new Earth. So <laughs> sounds like a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, it's cheesy, but um, but I think because we're an individualistic culture, we grow up thinking all life's about us. Everything's about you and creating your own story, your own, your own identity. So you, we're constantly looking for people to play their supporting role. Everybody wants their wingman. Mm. Everybody, you know, in the Mean Girls, the Mean Girls narratives in all the movies, every pretty girl wants an ugly girl as her sidekick to, you know, to do her bidding. Every, you know, there's all of that people looking for things to prop them up. Mm-hmm. And now here's what's interesting. Many people go to the Bible with the purpose of having the Bible prop them up. They want the Bible to be their wingman. So maybe they want to get their quote unquote best life. Now they want to get rich. They want to get the spouse. They want to get the family. They want to get the rich career. They want to uh, be popular on YouTube. And so they use the Bible to accomplish that means. And they use God and scripture to accomplish that means. And, and scripture is so comprehensive and it's so vast. There's so many different scriptures. You can kind of find a scripture to support not anything, but almost anything. You can find a lot of scriptures that teach you how to get wealth and get rich and get healthy and be wise and be popular. You can find those scriptures, right? And so the temptation for the 21st century American is to go to the Bible and make it about me. So I kind of bring to the Bible what I want in my life, and I'm going to try to use the Bible and use God to get what I want already, you know? Well, that is a 21st century way of reading the Bible, and it's not. It's a me-centered way of reading the Bible. It's not um, an accurate, it's not a biblical hermeneutic, okay? It's a faulty hermeneutic, and we need to get down in it and realize what should shape our hermeneutic. And if, if I had just one term, I would say at Sacred City, we have a gospel-centered hermeneutic, okay? We read the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, through the lens of the gospel. So when you put glasses on, if you put some pink stunners on, everything you see is going to have a pink tint through it, right? Those glasses are going to affect everything that you see. If you put blue ones on, it's going to, some blue blockers or whatever, it's going to affect everything you see. So what we want to do is we want to put gospel-centered lenses on our eyes as we read the Bible Mm. to help us interpret it the way it's meant to be interpreted, okay? And so I'm going to give you three overarching themes of the Bible that are meant to shape our hermeneutic, the way that we interpret all Scripture. Mm. Now, I was given, when I first became a Christian, a faulty hermeneutic. My hermeneutic was this. The Old Testament is all legalism. It's all law. It's all, quote-unquote, Old Testament. We're not Old Testament Christians. We're New Testament Christians. We're under grace, not law. We're, you know, Jesus, not this, blah, 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 blah. And so there was no value. When I became a Christian, there was no value in reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament was just a bunch of cool stories of Dave, I mean, David cutting the head off of Goliath and, you know, doing awesome stuff and all these awesome stories. But I'm like, what the heck was the, how, how does that apply to my life? So what my Bible teachers would do would say, David, he was a little man, right? 
He, but he's a man of big faith. He trusted God. He went out there and snatched lions and killed bears and killed Goliath. And then they would say, they would allegorize that and they would say, what are the, what are the giants in your life, Justin? What are the giants? Is it debt? Is it insecurity? Is it fear? Well, why don't you go down to the stream and pick up five smooth stones, Justin, and slay your giant. Slay them. And they would tell me, here's what your five smooth stones represent. And they would give me some five principles or some bull crap that they got out of some Andy Stanley book or vision book or some bestseller book. And they used the Old Testament like an allegory to tell me how to live my life. Can you define allegory real quick? Allegory, oh gosh, why don't you define allegory? Can you define allegory? I don't know if I can, that's why I'm asking. An allegory is like a story that has implied meaning in the story. I'm just inventing that. So I, I, I'm inventing that definition right now off the top you of my head. You just that. So <laughs> I think I might have. Um, so an allegory is a story, a poem, a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Typically a moral or political one, okay? So, so David and Goliath wasn't about David and Goliath. It's also about me mm. and what I can do in the face of great evil, okay? Now, I necessarily don't have a problem with that if we're down the line in second or third kind of modes of interpretation. The problem is if David and Goliath is primarily an allegory about how I should live my life, how do I know who I am in that story? Am I David? Am I Goliath? Am I the Israelites shaking in their boots, afraid to go out to battle? Am I one of his brothers? Right? Now, what we do, of course, you're David. (laughs) Of course you're David. You know, who's Goliath? Probably the people on the other side of the political spectrum or some other country or, or, or your fear or your anxiety or whatever. That's not the primary way to interpret the Bible. Now, why can I say that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, teaches us how do we how we're to interpret the scriptures. Okay? And I'm gonna get to that in a second. So we're gonna talk about a gospel-centered hermeneutic. I think there's at least three pieces that we have to have. So these three lenses, they're not bifocals, they're trifocals. Okay. Right. Three lenses that we have to read when we're reading any scripture. From Genesis to Revelation. The first one is the lens of covenant. Okay, now, I'm not going to go into great detail because on the Theology for Life podcast, we're working through covenant right now. So mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about covenant in a little bit more detail. But when you're talking about covenants, covenants are like a, um, a legal agreement between parties. Uh, it's a promise to do certain things. It's going to have conditions. If you do this, then this will go well for you. If you fail to meet these, then there's going to be uh, consequences to that. There's going to be penalties. With the covenant, there's going to be seals. There's going to be signs of the covenant, all the covenants, okay? In the Bible, there, I'm going to say there's three covenants, Okay? There is a covenant of redemption that happens within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about this last podcast. They, Father, Son, Holy Spirit come together. They make a covenant to create humanity 
they know they're going to sin and they make a covenant to redeem humanity. They each have a part to play. The father's going to send the son. The son's going to come and, and live the perfect life and die a substitutionary death and accomplish salvation for us. And then he's going to rise again out of the grave and defeat death, hell, sin, and the grave. He's going to exalt, uh, be um, lifted up to the right hand of the father. Father and son then are going to send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to fill the church and the church is going to further the mission of God until it reaches the new heavens and new earth. That covenant of redemption was made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time began, okay? First covenant. Second covenant we talked a little bit about in the last Theology for Everyone podcast, which was the covenant of works. That was made between God and man. God said this, you can do basically whatever you want to do, just don't eat from that one tree. If you Whatever you want to do, you go, you know, Make culture, make babies, develop cities, do, go to the moon. Just don't eat from this one tree. If you eat from this one tree, what's going to happen, Bryson? Die. You will surely die. That's the covenant of works. God makes a promise between man and himself. Now, that is, a, that is even, that's a humble thing for God to do. He descended to man, a finite creature, and he made a covenant with him. I'm willing to do all of this good for you, give you all of this creation, this whole Eden, this whole earth. I'm willing to give you the sun that you need, the animals that you need, the wife that you need. I'm willing to give you the relationship that you need. I'm willing to give you everything your soul needs for life and godliness and to prosper on this world. Just don't touch this one tree. That was the covenant of works. And if you touch this tree, or if you eat of this tree, I'm sorry, if you eat of this tree, you'll be cursed. You'll die. Well, what happens, Alex? They touch the tree. They eat the tree. She sees that it's good. She eats it. She gives it to her husband. He eats. He blames her, right? She blames the snake. We got a problem. And, And then we have a third covenant, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is a covenant between God and man that he's not going to immediately kill them. They will die. He's going to mark them. He's going to send them away. He's going to bar them from the garden, but he's promising to send a redeemer. He's promising to send a snake crusher who will crush the head of the snake and receive this mortal wound, but will one day defeat Satan, right? And the covenant of grace begins really in Genesis chapter three, and it starts working itself out, and and we start to see it in greater and greater and greater clarity through the different covenants that we see in the Bible covenant with Noah, then a covenant with Abraham, covenant of David, Mm -hmm. and then the new covenant that Jesus institutes. Now, all of those covenants are actually grace-based. I mean, yeah, all of those covenants are grace-based because they're all, um, God didn't have to do those things, and God acted first. And so if God acts first, then it's it's grace-based, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're reading the Bible, we need to understand the covenants that God has made and if we're going to understand Scripture. And we're going to have to know what covenant was working. When I'm reading Genesis, what covenant is working right now, right? It's just the covenant of Noah, covenant of Abraham, etc. Because each covenant is going to have a little bit, it's going to be a covenant of grace, but it's going to have a little bit of uh, detail. Here's what God's promising to do. Here's what mankind has to do. If you do this, It'll go well for you. If you do that, it'll go bad for you, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So we have to have this covenantal framework 
when we're reading scripture, okay? Because God doesn't invent things willy-nilly. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't um, go back on his word. God is a covenant-keeping God, and we have to see all of scripture through that lens of covenant, okay? Any questions on covenant before we move on? So how do you do with, like, like some of the Old Testament passages that are, like, very descriptive about, like, building the temple or filling the temple or like there's seven gold bowls and all these different things like yeah well we have to understand what covenant are they under there mm-hmm. right where are we at in the story of God and and now we're looking back so we're farther along in the story where Jesus has already came and Jesus has taught us now how to interpret what was going on in the temple, okay? So I'm not going to, I don't want to give it away because basically we're going to get, we're going to get to that point number three, okay? So point number two, we want to have, when we bring the lenses we put on, we want to have covenantal lenses. Secondly, we want to have redemptive lenses. Again, many people think that God like started redeeming in the New Testament. God did not start redeeming in the New Testament. When did God start redeeming? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Explain that. What do you mean? Genesis 3 is where he made the promise amidst the curses of, of the Redeemer, of the, the serpent crusher. Okay. So he made the promise. Then what did he do? How, so what happened there? There's a sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yeah. Boom. The first animal sacrifice. The first person or person first thing that was put in the place of humankind and redeemed humankind was some kind of animal right god killed an animal and clothed adam and eve yep. covered their nakedness so the first um picture we have of redemption is an animal dot when when god said don't do this you'll surely die they didn't die but something did yep. those animals had to die so we see redemption happen right away genesis chapter 3 and if you have that lens, you're going to see redemption all the way through. Not just at Abraham. Like, we kind of get it with Abraham and Isaac, and, and then there's this lamb stuck in the thicket. It's happening all over the place. There's this redemptive move of God. Even when God... Let, let me show you this. I'm going to go to Jeremiah uh, chapter 24. No, I'm going to go to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. And Jesus says, or God says this. For, you know, we, or I'll start with 11. Common scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Okay, that sounds like God saying, when you come after me, then I will save you. Hmm. Then I will do good for you. Then you will know me. It sounds very much like you work and then I work. Right? Isn't that that sounds like? Yeah. But in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7, God says this. So before he said that, he says this. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, 
and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their their whole heart. So here we see the redemptive movement of God that God moves first before he expects mankind to return to him and to seek him with all their heart. So God's saying, I will give you a heart and then with that heart, you seek me with your whole heart. Hmm. Okay? Many times people think that the old covenant under Moses was like a legalistic covenant. But think about what happened before that. Like God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, right? Have no other God before me, blah, 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 blah. We go all the way through the Old Testament. But what did God do in the first, you know, 20 chapters of Exodus? What did he do? Brought them out of Egypt. Wow. Okay. He brought them out of Egypt. He redeemed them, Mm -hmm. right? He bought them out. And so God worked, then they, then he expected their response, right? He was not saying that the Exodus did not go like this. If you obey me, I'll bring you out. If you obey me, I'll deliver you. Many people have this legalistic understanding of the Old Testament that it's we act, then God acts. Hmm. We need to have redemptive lenses that God acts and everything, God acts, and then asks, asks us to act, okay? That's why over and over in the Old Testament, you hear the God of our fathers, the God of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's he doing? He's reminding them that God has acted first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God has went before. God has done this work. Now I'm expecting you to obey me. Now I'm expecting you to respond to my work, okay? So when we're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, we want to have a redemptive lens, when God's commanding me to do something, he's commanding me to do it after he's already done so much for me. He's already created me. He's already redeemed me. He's already sent Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So the behavior he's requiring of me is after the work that he's already done. Now, it's the work builds as we get to the New Testament. Clearly, he's done right. a lot more than he did with Abraham, and et cetera, et cetera. Okay? The third lens that I want us to give is where... Um, I didn't want to jump ahead with Bryson's questions, and that's the the lens of Jesus, hmm. okay? We, we're talking about this. There's basically two ways of reading the Bible. There's one way you can read the Bible that it's basically about you, what you have to do in order to be right with God. It's basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Um, and if you read it with that lens, you'll never have a sure and certain hope because you'll be reading it like, here's what you're supposed to do to be saved, have I done enough? Do I know enough? Do I, do I love God enough? Do I worship God enough? Do I give enough? Do I sacrifice enough? Do I believe enough? You'll never be certain because you know you're always, you're never quite living up. You never pray enough. You never read enough. You never know enough. You never love enough. You never give enough, right? Or you can read the Bible like it's primarily about Jesus, that Jesus is the center of the whole story. That every single thing is not about what you must do in order to make yourself right with God, but what he has done to make you right, to make you absolutely right with God. Hmm. Okay? And so, G- I got a question. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, a lot of people say like, well, since Jesus came in the New Testament, does, does the Old Testament even matter? Yeah. Yeah. Everything's old- made new, right? So like, and you not eat pork and, you know, things like that. Yeah, okay, so that's that. That's getting into some details. Yeah. 
there, there are some things about the old covenant and the Levitical laws and the, the purity laws and cleanliness laws that we don't need anymore. We don't need them because Jesus fulfilled them. Okay? So we don't have to do all those things because Jesus makes us right with God, not what we eat. What we eat cannot make us unclean anymore because Jesus has made us clean. And what God calls clean, man should not call unclean. Okay? So some of those things have been fulfilled. So again, it takes a little bit of theology, a little bit of doctrine, a little bit of nuance to understand what part of the Old Testament has been fulfilled and what part of the Old Testament is still, you know, working its way out. Right? Um, So... What Jesus does in two important texts, do you have a Bible in front of you, Bryson? Mm -hmm. Would you open up to John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40? 39 through 40? Yeah. And uh, Kevin, would you open up Luke 24, uh, 25 through 27? Let me go ahead and read this. Yeah, go ahead. You search the scriptures because you think that... Hold on. Who's Who's talking? Jesus. Okay, go ahead. You search the scriptures because you think that in them... You have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Mm. So the Pharisees and Sadducees there saw the scriptures as something that pointed them to life, right? So the scriptures are something that get me where I want to go. I want to go to life. I want to go to eternal life. I want a new heaven, whatever. But Jesus says... You don't understand the scriptures because you don't understand that they actually point to me. That Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. So in that, Jesus is saying, he's given us that gospel-centered hermeneutic, the Jesus-centered hermeneutic. He's saying, all of the Bible is actually pointing to me. It's not about you. It's not just about heaven. It's not just about life. All of the scriptures is primarily about me. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to read it in such a way that you understand that it's really happening in the historical narrative, but it's pointing forward in some way to Jesus. Go ahead and read Luke 24, 25 to 27. All right. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets, to believe that all to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so we have at least two layers of what was going on in the Old Testament. We have what Abraham was doing, what Noah was doing, what Moses was doing, what David was doing, what the prophets were doing. In real world... Uh, you know, history, like they were doing those things. Mm -hmm. But Jesus says, what's wrong with the Pharisees is they don't realize that those stories were more than just historical realities. They're also theological realities, realities that were pointing to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does with his disciples there on that road to Emmaus is he goes back through Moses and the prophets and the law and he shows them how there was a deeper meaning in those scriptures. They were all pointing to me. So we think about, I mean, this is a really simple analogy, but or not analogy, but example. 
with Abraham and Isaac, right? God tells Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, the son that you love, and take him up on that mountain and sacrifice him, kill him. And Abraham obeys, and he saddles up the donkey, and he saddles up his son, and his son's like, hey, Dad, we forgot the sacrifice. And Abraham says, no, son, God will provide the sacrifice. <laughs> he was telling the truth, though, right? <laughs> he was, and Abraham was operating in faith because Abraham knew God is not the God that would ask me to kill my son. He's not going to kill my son. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand what God's asking of me, but I'm willing to obey before I understand it. So Abraham gets to the top of this mountain and he pulls out the knife. He straps his son to the altar and he raises that knife. And it's interesting because, of course, Isaac is the one who sees the lamb first. He's like, oh, 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 there's a lamb right there, God. Dad. God is good. Yeah. Dad, there's a lamb. Wait up. There's a lamb right there stuck in the thicket. And so we see in that that Abraham is willing yeah. to possibly even kill his son if God tells him to do it but also that God is gracious and that God provides a different substitutionary sacrifice, mm -hmm. okay? How does Jesus change the interpretation of that story? He is a sacrifice. Okay. There's no, there's no ram stuck in the bush that's going to come save him. That's right. That's great. So the Father, God, actually did what he didn't ask Moses to do. Or Abraham, Abraham to do, right? Yeah. God actually killed his son. And the son, Jesus, was the better Isaac. He actually took the knife. He actually took the crucifixion. He actually took the death. There was no lamb. Jesus was the lamb, right? The lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. He's the lion and he's the lamb in the book of Revelation. So we see that there's, I'm going to say, two layers of interpretation. There's what actually happened with Abraham and Isaac and God and all of that. That's a historical reality. But it was also pointing for the true meaning of that would not be understood until Jesus Christ came and mm -hmm. fulfilled that story. Yeah. Right? Now, you can go to every freaking story in the Old Testament and you can do this. You can go to Noah's in the, Noah and the Ark. Like, Jesus is the Ark. He's the true and better ark. If you enter the ark, if you enter Christ, if you, if, you, if you enter Christ, you'll be saved from the wrath of God. That's going to cover the whole earth and destroy everybody who's not, sa who's not saved, right? Jesus is the true and better ark. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the true and better Moses who delivers his people out of slavery, right? Not just Egyptian slavery, physical slavery, cultural slavery, slavery, but the slavery to sin itself. Mm. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Jesus is the true and better, better new covenant. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Ten Commandments. Jesus narrows it down to two, right? Love God and love others. Jesus, you could go all the way through. All of the Old Testament points forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? Read uh, out of that Luke 24. What are, what it's, what's verses 44 through 47? You say 44? Yeah, 40, 24, 44 through 47. 
Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, stop. You hear that? The law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the prophets, all the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus saying, all of that was about me. It was written about me, and it must be fulfilled. So we can't read the Psalms in a way that disconnects them from Jesus. Right? That's, uh, Go ahead. Me and my wife are reading through the Psalms, and uh, she noticed uh, last week, I think, she, we were in, like, in the beginning parts of it, and she's reading some of stuff from David, and she's like, David's kind of self-righteous. Like, it seems like, every like oh, I'm blameless. Oh, yeah, I'm... Yeah. Uh, my righteousness and yeah we talk about that for a sec yeah so that's good that's a good question and i'll be honest i've often thought the same thing but what i think is actually going on i don't think that's accurate i think david knew he was justified by faith Mm -hmm. i think david knew in god's eyes he was righteous because he was truly forgiven Mm -hmm. he was truly loved and god counted him as righteous so he was counted righteous in Christ without even knowing who Jesus was because mm-hmm. he trusted in the Messiah that was to come. And so he's literally, that, that he's showing us how we should pray. Mm-hmm. God, I, think I, haven't, I don't think I've done anything wrong here. My enemies are attacking me, and I, I want you to smash the teeth of the wicked. I think I'm pretty righteous here. Now, we also know that David, he wrote Psalms where he realized he clearly wasn't righteous, mm-hmm. Right? Psalm 50 as one example. So we see that either he was schizophrenic or he knew, he knew something like, you know, he, cause he wrote Psalms about being cursed and being cut off and being, you know, his sins are, he's drowning in his sins up to his neck. And, and then he writes about being righteous. Um, he knew the both and of being in, I'm going to use the language now, being in Christ and yet still being a sinner, being justified and made righteous by the redemption of God, but also I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. You know, he was an adulterer, possibly a rapist. He was a murderer. You know, he he took Bathsheba, it says he took her. Mm -hmm. Um, She was already married. He's the king. He's in a position of power. So he had done evil, evil deeds, and yet when confronted by Nathan, he repented. He suffered great consequences in the death of his son and the destruction of his empire and the destruction of his family. Um, And yet he he was forgiven. He was forgiven by God and he was a man after God's own heart. So he was both a saint and a sinner. And I I mean, I I just feel like this is like a lot and maybe a lot of people may not understand, but maybe this could be helpful. But uh, I normally read for dinner after dinner. I read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible and Jesus is always the hero, yeah. right? And I, I just feel like a lot of people that may not have read the whole entire Bible, that book would be very helpful. And I, I believe we sell it in the foyer at church, and it really lets you see like a gospel-centered view that, we're, that you're yeah. talking about where Jesus is always the center. Yep, it's, it's great. So the Jesus Storybook Bible is a great introduction into yep. gospel-centered, Jesus-centered hermeneutics. Yeah. Um, now... It's not sufficient. So what I mean by that is it's for kids, right? It's And so it can, so like once your kids get it, get a little older, 
it deletes a lot of the gritty, realistic, nasty details of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which our kids need, okay? Yeah. I talked about before, my kids started thinking kind of the cheese, the, the Bible was a little cheesy because we were reading the Jesus story Bible for yeah. years. So I was like, okay, it's time to read Judges. Yeah. And we pulled out some Judges, and my kids were like, oh, what's going on? You know, And I'm like, yep, yeah, that's the real world. So we need both, but if you want to learn how to see Jesus in a lot of the stories in the Old Testament and, the, and in the New Testament, you should pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible because sure. it helps us see that Jesus is the center of every story. Yeah. Every story. So there's two implications for what we're talking about. One, we need Jesus mm-hmm. in order to understand the Bible. So you can't understand Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the Old Testament. You can't understand those books without understanding Jesus. So we tell our Jewish friends, you don't even understand the Old Testament because you need the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. You need Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, in order to rightly understand the Old Testament. But also... To our Christians, friends, we say, but you need the Old Testament to be able to understand Jesus. Because all of those stories give us new um, perspectives on the work that Jesus did for us. Hmm. If you want an example on how to do this, with warning, I'll give you a warning. I would say go back and listen to our um, sermon series through the book of Genesis. It was like the second year of our church, so it was eight years ago. I was probably far more controversial and maybe a little, I don't know. I, I, I haven't listened to those sermons in a long time, and so I, I send you back there. Give me grace if you listen to those sermons, right? <laughs> but every single sermon through the 50 chapters of Genesis, I do my best to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of that story in the Bible. And so go back and listen to that, those sermons, and you're at least, I might offend you, I might have said some really dumb stuff, I don't know. But I will at least show you a new way of seeing that scripture with Jesus as the hero. Mm -hmm. Jacob and Joseph and, I mean, all of that, it was some seriously good stuff. And we need the Old Testament to be able to understand Jesus. So all those pictures of Jacob wrestling with the angel and um, Noah in the ark, all of that shows us in a greater clarity what Jesus has actually done for us. Yeah. You know, the Exodus shows us what Jesus has actually done for us. So it helps us understand that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what the Bible's all about. Yeah. It's not about us. It's primarily about Jesus. And so when we come to our scriptures, when we come to our scriptures, we need to have those lenses on. So you, you would say this, okay, when you're reading the Bible, what the heck? You're reading the Old Testament. What is this? What is going on? What does this say about Jesus? How is this prefiguring Jesus? How is this pointing forward to Jesus? How is Jesus the fulfillment of the scripture? So you ask specifically, when Jesus, when God gives all the uh, details in uh, Leviticus or whatever it is of make the temple like this, 
that the temple was meant to be a sacred place and every detail mattered. Well, you're reading all that and you're like, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, one thing you could say is Jesus is the new temple. Like we don't need the temple anymore and all these instruments because Jesus has fulfilled that. We don't need a wash basin. Why? Why don't we need a wash basin anymore? We've already been washed. We've already been washed by Jesus, right? You can go on and on. We don't need a sacrifice anymore. Why don't we need a sacrifice? There's already been a sacrifice. Which is? Jesus. Jesus, he's already the sacrifice. Why don't we have priests? We have a high priest. He's the great high priest. In the book of, in the book of Hebrews, he tells us all this, right? We don't need a dwelling place, a temple where we go to meet God. Why? Because he came and met us, lives in us, dwells in us. Boom. First in Jesus and then in us. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are pointing forward to the reality. There were foreshadowing Jesus. The temple was a picture of what Jesus was going to do in fulfillment. The wash basin, the labor, the sacrifice, the Ark of the Covenant, the... Uh, Exodus, the ark, all of that was pointing forward to Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. So we need to primarily read the Bible like it's all about Jesus and secondarily about us. Yeah. It does teach us how to live. Mm -hmm. It does, does teach us what's wise. It does teach us what's good. It does teach us what's right. Um, and it does teach us what to do when we've done wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? We repent and we go back to Jesus, the one who never did anything wrong lived the perfect life, and died the substitutionary death. So, so hermeneutics, ah, 201, whatever. What's a gospel-centered hermeneutic? Gospel-centered hermeneutic sees things through the, the lens of covenant, the lens of redemption, and the lens, of course, of Jesus. All scripture. That's what it's about first and foremost. Okay? So when we read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are about Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one who actually obeyed them perfectly, right? Is there, is there some tools that could help us get ready to read the Bible like this? Yeah, so there's some books out there. Um, you could read Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics. Um, there's a good book that you can read, and that one is by, who is Gospel-Centered? Um, who's Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics by? I'm trying to think right off the top of my head who that's by. Oh, Graeme Goldsworthy. That's who that's by. Um, Sings Christ and All of Scripture. That's another book that's out there. Um, you can go back and listen, like I said, to our old Genesis series, our Exodus series. You're going to see me do that specifically. Um, Tim Keller's great at this. Yeah, there's lots of resources out there you can find it. So, so if you have any questions on this, we would love for you to ask them, and we would love to try to answer them in the future. So um, hopefully this has helped you. I've heard that you guys have been enjoying some of these podcasts, so thank you for that. Would you please like us? Would you please give us the big old five stars? Help other people find us in the podcast app, wherever you're at. Um, share it. Like us. Do whatever you can on all social media so people can hear about us. Share it with people in your missional community so they're listening to these. Um, we Again, we just want to do this so that you can follow Jesus um, better in your everyday rhythms of life. We love you guys. God bless you. Talk to you soon.